You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast, a podcast about paleontology, evolution, and the wonderful history of life on Earth. This is episode 162, and our main topic this time is Sicilians. It's gonna get weird. Sicilians are a group of amphibians that are well known for a handful of things. For example, being shaped like worms, Mm -hmm. which is kind of strange. Being just not very well understood or known compared to the more famous amphibians like frogs and salamanders. But mostly they're known for being utterly bizarre and mysterious. Yep. There is so much we don't know about Sicilian lifestyle and evolution, and what we do know is very strange. I am super excited to talk about Sicilians this episode. We've already talked about it. We already recorded it, but I'm super excited for our (laughs) listeners to hear it. We will talk about what Sicilians are, what makes them distinctive. We will go through their lifestyle, and we'll take a bit of a tour across Sicilian anatomy and the surprises that lie within. And then we will go through the fossil record to see what we know about the evolution of this strange group of amphibians. As always, there's a blog post associated with this episode. There's a link in the episode description. If you don't know what a Sicilian is, go click that link and get a look, get an image in your brain, so you can follow along as we're talking about these weird animals. Yeah, they they are super distinct once you get to know them, but easy to have never heard of them before. (laughs) No surprise to our long-term listeners that I am doing the episode about the long legless creatures. Yep. Yeah. Hey, we're not just talking about this topic because they're fascinating and cool, but also because it was requested by some of our listeners. This topic was specifically requested by Carissa, and we have gotten requests for more amphibians (laughs) from Ed and Fish TC. So here we go. Thank you all for those requests. Yes. Now, before we get into the main topic, the news, all the big stuff, a few announcements. As usual, first and foremost, we have a Patreon. Mm -hmm. Also down in the episode description, you can find a link to our Patreon. People who subscribe to our Patreon not only help to keep the podcast running top to bottom, but get bonus goodies. We put out director's notes. We do monthly live streams with our patrons. We have bonus audio content like bonus noise, which is what we are now calling bonus news plus after chat. It's a continuous evolution. If you'd like to support our science communication efforts and also get some more from us, please consider joining us on Patreon. And hey, if you subscribe at a particular level, we will shout your name out on the podcast. This episode, we would like to welcome new patrons, Geraldine, Landon, Renee, and Noe. Thanks for the support and welcome. Thank you, everybody. We had a few more announcements. Uh, Last episode, we mentioned that we are appearing at ETSUCon, the Mm -hmm. comic convention here in Johnson City. We're recording this before that has happened. So when this episode comes out, it will be the weekend of ETSUCon. So we can report that it's probably going great. Yep, sure hope it is. Thanks to everyone who has shown up so far. Uh, (laughs) It's been great to see you, we assume. (laughs) On the note of upcoming things, we are looking forward to the summer where we will see the return of Croc and Snake Month in June and July. We'll have some special extra stuff going on for those months similar to last year. We'll have more details in the near future. 
If you are a patron, you will be getting some details a little bit sooner, so keep your eyes out for that. And also making its return this year, Silver Screen Science. Yeah! This is a side series where we talk about the science in movies and how movies treat science and how we sort of interpret and see science and all the fun things to talk about where science meets pop culture. There's a couple things on the horizon that are candidates for Silver Screen Science. We haven't sorted them out yet. As many of our listeners have pointed out to us, a dinosaur movie just came out. Mm -hmm. 65 with Kylo Ren in it. So we'll probably do a silver screen science about that. Also, apparently Prehistoric Planet's coming back. Yep. And we did a silver screen for the first season, so there is a decent chance that we will end up doing a silver screen for the second season. No further details decided yet, because neither of those are things we've seen yet. But stay tuned. There are probably some silver screen science episodes in the near future. Yeah. And that's all of our announcements. So with that, we can move on. To the news. Every episode, we like to cover some news from the world of paleontology, evolution, related sciences. Share it with our listeners so everybody stays up to date on what's going on. This episode, we are doing something we have never done before. Mm -hmm. We have news guests. We are joined for the news this episode by the hosts of the I Know Dino podcast. Hello, Sabrina and Garrett. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us. We're excited to have you here as part of uh, our news discussions. Before we get into that, uh, if you would please go ahead, introduce yourselves and your podcast to any of our listeners who might be unfamiliar. Yeah. So thank you very much for having us. We are Garrett and Sabrina. We're a husband and wife team. We've been doing the I Know Dino podcast for eight years. It's about dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. There's a new discovery <laughs> pretty much every week, so... Even though in the beginning we weren't sure how long we'd go, but there's turns out more than enough to talk about. <laughs> yeah. We both we discovered that we have this shared love of dinosaurs. And when we started the podcast, there wasn't any news outlet anywhere we could find that was covering every single new dinosaur discovery because like Sabrina said, they were every week. So we decided to start the podcast and now we have it and we talk about dinosaur news and interviews. It's I think it's similar to your show, but more dinosaur focused. So that's that's the <laughs> sure. sort of our overview of what it's like. Yes, we are, of course, a paleontology podcast and paleontology is so broad that we only get to talk about dinosaurs most episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So you get to be uh, very focused. Well, we will. I'll certainly ask you uh, to tell us a little bit more about your podcast after some news, but let's go ahead. We'll dive into the news. Will, start us off with our first news this episode. What do we got? I have a study on the eyes of Thylacosmilus, the marsupial-ish saber-toothed predator. Oh, fun. Yes. We've talked about this uh, particular weirdo numerous times in the news as well. This research is by Charlene Gaylord et al. in Communications Biology, and the article is by Jennifer Nowicki in Live Science. That article, as usual, will be linked in the blog post. So the eyes are a focus for many fossil studies to try to interpret the behavior or, or diets of some animals because we see many patterns in the positioning of eyes, especially among mammals, and how it matches up to their lifestyle. You know, predators tend to have forward-facing eyes, so that they have stereoscopy, which is the overlapped binocular vision that gives them that 3D vision. It's what lets us throw and catch things so well. 
whilst many herbivores have eyes on the side, which gives them a wide range of vision, but not a lot of depth perception, you know, very 2D vision. Good for seeing movement, but not aiming at stuff. We see this pattern in tons of groups today. We also see it in many fossil groups. This is often used to try to interpret how predatory or not predatory was this animal, or at least give some supporting evidence to their lifestyle. This study was looking at one particular specimen, specifically of a group called the Sporacidonts, which are a group of South American carnivores closely related to marsupials, but not quite to marsupials mm -hmm. as we think of them today. And this group shows that same pattern. The eyes are placed where you'd think they'd be placed for these carnivorous, not quite marsupials. Except Dilacosmilus atrox. Of course it's the weird one. Yep. So Thalacosmilus <laughs> is a, a famous fossil animal with large saber teeth like Smilodon, like your saber-toothed cats, except these saber teeth are open-rooted that extend back into the skull and seem to have been ever-growing and are shaped differently. They're not the same saber-like shape. They're a little bit more wedge-shaped and have been questioned for years and years what exactly they were using them for because their body shape and their tooth shape and their tooth anatomy are all unique for a saber-toothed predator and don't quite fit any model we have. Looking at their eyes, their eyes also don't fit the expected model. Their eyes are in unusual positions. I guess with an animal where everything is unexpected... This is expected. Right? Yep. <laughs> of course the eyes are weird. It would have been weird if they weren't weird. Par for the course. Looking at CT scans of three large specimens of Thylacosmilus, they found that the orbits were divergent from the rest of the group. They were wide set. They compared it to like those of a cow or a horse. So like they are far apart. They're not forward on the skull. So they don't have that predator uh, binocular setup that you would expect for what seems to be a hypercarnivore based on other evidence. Like, it does other evidence support that it was eating mostly meat. What they found was, though, that it did still achieve some aspect of binocular vision by moving its orbits outward and vertical. So upward on the head. So out and up, still rotating them forward, gave them about a 70-degree field of vision overlap, which is similar to most cats we see. So they have similar binocular vision, and they think that likely the reason that it's placed this way is because of the weird teeth. I was wondering. <laughs> extending up into the skull and taking up real estate where the eyes would normally have been positioned. So the eyes couldn't be in the normal, like where they are on a cat, because the teeth are in the way, so they had to do like this weird roundabout. They're literally having to look around the roots of their teeth. <laughs> oh, weird. That's utterly bizarre. Yep. So it's like a jar jar like, or frog, like, eyes yeah. straight out of the top <laughs> of the head. <laughs> like, it, it, they, the, there's art for the uh, news piece that is a face-on view of Thylacosmilus showing that it can, it looking at you with both eyes, but the eyes are just, just, a, like, a little too high. A little high and a little wide set. Just, just oddly positioned for where you would expect the eye. It's like when you, you know, have to point out where the eyes actually are on an orca and stuff like that, mm -hmm. where it's like, no, it's not the white spot. It's these little <laughs> things right here. Like It's kind of got that feeling of just, they're not where you would place it if you were asked someone to place the eyes on the shape of the head. Interesting. Does it look kind of like a cartoon in that sense? It, it's definitely, it, I don't know, it, it just, 
the the Jar Jar comparison, I feel, is very apt. It looks very Star Wars-y in that it looked like someone just went, all right, well, I want to make it look weird, so I will move the eyes up, you know, a few inches, and that'll <laughs> that'll make it feel Star Wars-y. That'll make it feel not quite like just a normal Earth animal. Sure. That's how its face looks. <laughs> well, it's so, it's so interesting to hear that because this, like you said, this placement of the eyes in relation to lifestyle is so typical and so predictable even outside of mammals, because we've talked about this, and I'm sure you guys have talked about this with dinosaurs, that we see that pattern in carnivorous dinosaurs mm-hmm. where they have those forward-facing eyes versus herbivorous dinosaurs. So the fact that the weirdo we've identified here is a mammal yep, <laughs> is a very strange little anomaly within our diversity of eye shapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and speaking of dinosaurs, because <laughs> that's all we know about <laughs> that's our that's our bread and butter <laughs> the uh please relate it to dinosaurs yeah it's i kind of thought you might go a different way with the study I, you know i was trying to guess what these conclusions were going to be mm-hmm. and with some dinosaurs so t-rex famously has great binocular vision it's got a wide head wide face it has plenty of space for those eyes both to point forward but there are a fair number of dinosaurs that actually don't have very good binocular visions and we think that they were in fact, you know, good hyper carnivores. They have the sharp teeth. Sometimes we even find them in association with bones that they probably ate and things like that. So it could be possible that even if it didn't have the best binocular vision, it might have been able to hunt. Although it sounds like they just came up with a, a little hack to raise the eyes up mm-hmm. so they didn't have to deal with <laughs> losing the binocular <laughs> vision, which is something those dinosaurs, I guess, couldn't try because their face was just a little too narrow. There wasn't a place they could get the eyes that would work yeah well and i i like that that point be made of it there seems to be dinosaurs that lacked this this stereoscopy but were still getting the meat that they they were adapted to eat and that always makes me that that makes me think of the comparison i always make with binocular vision that we also see that in a lot of arboreal you know tree climbing right. groups. monkeys monkeys yep. like primates have great binocular vision and they are not primarily predators they are they are not typically hunting so like that, you know, lack of or presence of that vision is not a guarantee for the lifestyle you had. The fact that they still had it, even with their weird face, is almost the more surprising part. <laughs> like, that you still achieved it. And yet we still don't know what you were doing with those saber teeth, for sure. Yeah. We still don't agree on how you were using those. Right. Swimming up in, in the, the oceans of Naboo, yes, yes. <laughs> one assumes. <laughs> well, that's, that's very cool. Yeah. There are features that can be just so misleading, too, where we always talk about Dinochirus, which is also compared to Jar Jar Binks on occasion because it's got the duck bill, huge clawed hands. Everyone, we just found the hands and arms for, you know, 50 years. And everyone assumed, even the paper that described it, I was just rereading it, talked about it must be this amazing, huge carnivore and just how impressive yes. it must have been and and then we found the rest of the body and it's like a humpbacked weird plant-eating giant duck looking thing <laughs> so yeah and i think that one actually probably had fairly decent binocular vision it would have had at least a little bit of binocular vision yeah and it's because it's evolved from theropods and theropods are the meat-eating dinosaurs so yeah, yeah, you never know. Biology combines very strange features sometimes. I just I can't get over for this animal the uh, the roots going all the way up in the skull. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> it's 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 very strange, super super weird, <laughs> and that you just had these saber teeth 
that just kept growing. Okay, <laughs> sure. Kind of like our noses and ears, but for it, the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, now I want to see a uh, grandparent. A grandparent yeah. like a smile with really big teeth. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we keep circling around dinosaurs, which of course is not surprising, uh, we've invited the dinosaur <laughs> podcasters on. Uh, you've brought some news along to share today. Uh, please go ahead and tell us about your news. Yes. So this one is really cool because it's sauropods and sauropods are my favorite. And it's all about the neck. This is a, the paper is called Reassessment of the Late Jurassic Eusauropod Mementosaurus Sinocanadorum, Russell and Jung, 1993, and the Evolution of Exceptionally Long Necks in Mementosaurids. And it was published in Journal of Systematic Paleontology by Andrew J. Moore et al. And in our blog post, we'll link to an article by Will Sullivan in Smithsonian Magazine. Yeah, so mementosaurids are amazing because of their necks. And we talk about them a lot because there's this one museum in Japan that has this, it's a time travel. We bring this one up a lot because it really made an impression on us. This time travel room with all these animatronic dinosaurs and it kind of plays out the end of their world. And they've got this really impressive mementosaurus. It's mostly the neck and it gives, oh, just seeing it in person is like, oh my gosh, I knew they had long necks, but being next to it like how is it this long how is it standing and it could move the neck up and down a little bit <laughs> <laughs> so for this paper they're estimating that the neck of mementosaurus sinocanadorum is about 49 and a half feet or 15.1 meters long so it's one of the longest known sauropod necks i can't even fat like that's too much neck <laughs> too much so neck, much that's neck. Un absolutely unreasonable your neck is longer than almost every animal that's ever lived <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> how do you do anything i yeah. guess it's good for grazing <laughs> yeah sometimes we talk about like diplodocus is famous and it's got a long neck but really the tail is the story of diplodocus if you like long necks <laughs> mementosaurids those are your dinosaurs yeah it's yeah. It, there's there's some caveats to this study that the authors mentioned. This is assuming that there's 18 neck vertebrae. The authors, they redescribed the specimen for Mementosaurus sinocanadorum, and they did CT scans. And this includes three neck vertebrae and one uh, cervical rib, neck rib. So, yeah, they're assuming, okay, together, 18 and this makes it almost 50 feet long. And they, they do have a good reason to assume that because there's another Mementosaurid. You keep saying the full species name, which is good because there are several Mementosaurus species. And Mementosaurus young eye, we have a really great skeletal record of. We basically have the entire thing head through most of the body. So if you line up the different vertebrae that we have from the neck of Mementosaurus sinocanadorum with young eye, you can figure out which ones they are and kind of extrapolate a lot better about how big the total neck would have been. Yeah. But I did like in their paper, they quote said, it's a very coarse estimate extrapolated from a very small data set accompanied by enormous statistical uncertainty. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's science. Yes. I love, yeah. I love that uh, inclusion. That is fantastic. That's paleontology for you. Yes. 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 <laughs> I also appreciate the implication in this case that even if you're off by like 10 percent yeah that's still a 45 foot long neck that's <laughs> yes. that's still a preposterous this is a very long necked animal <laughs> yeah it's it's the if this has as many neck vertebrae as as others we found it's this long 
if it is lacking a few, then it is slightly less ridiculously long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no matter what, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Like <laughs> you, you would have to have you would have to only have a couple more neck vertebrae <laughs> to be reasonable. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like we're saying, it's a very long neck either way. And it's also what they found in line with neck length estimates of other large sauropods that we know from fragmentary fossils. So it's not too far off. And they think that this particular specimen was close to being mature when it died. So, you know, maybe it was fully grown or close to fully grown. So it's a it's a good estimate. Yeah. So this could be what we are seeing for upper size range of these necks. Yes. Yeah, because that's always the question with dinosaurs. We find so many juvenile dinosaurs fossilized and people say which one's bigger this one or this one it's like well we have one of each and we don't know what age they were so who knows this one is bigger than that one but that doesn't mean that as a species if you saw them in nature 70 million years ago that would have been the case (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely so then the big question is how did it support its neck because just how that's a lot of leverage Mm -hmm. on that long of a lever (laughs) (laughs) yeah well there's a few things so the neck vertebrae that they did find was hollow, uh, something like 69 to 77% air, wow. which speaking of news on the podcast, you guys were are on our show in an upcoming episode and we talked about hollow bones. So yeah, it's coming, coming Great back. Great integration. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like we planned it. Yeah. Yes. We planned this yeah. out. <laughs> so it could be that there's other neck vertebrae that haven't been found that were even more hollow. And apparently we see this in storks where the later neck vertebrae, like they were saying in the paper, vertebra number 16 are about 20% more hollow than vertebra number three, which I had no idea. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, birds are weird. (laughs) (laughs) They also had, Mementosaurus also had this bundle of stiff cervical ribs that make the neck less flexible and keep it more stable. these are these cervical ribs. They're on the sides of the neck. And the one that the authors redescribed was about 13 feet or a little over four meters long. Which, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. It's should... just this thing that's part of the neck. Okay. Yeah. So that would be overlapping <laughs> multiple vertebrae and, and acting as a, as a support across joints of the neck. And I believe we see a similar kind of structure in some dinosaur tails. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which also lends that yes. stiffness and support to the tail. Yeah, like Velociraptor has it in its tail. And we should probably clarify, they're called cervical ribs, but even though they're they're not like ribs in the rib cage, they are literally just a completely different structure. Cervical rib has nothing to do with a rib in a chest. It's just what they call it (laughs) because it's long and skinny. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so long neck, the hollowness helps. I still, it's, yeah, it's even hard to picture though. Yeah, 50 feet. it's like longer than our house, you know, like how <laughs> can a neck be that long or like longer than a tr- you know, a semi? It's just a ridiculous length for a neck. <laughs> it's an appropriate uh, kind of discussion to have this sh- shortly after we did a whole episode about giraffes. Yep. Which was episode mm. 159, where we talked about what it takes to be that shape and that proportion and all the weird adaptations that an animal like that needs. And we talked about sauropods. Episode 101 was about sauropods, where we talked about how that's even more extreme and ridiculous. And it not at all surprising to hear that there were multiple features of the neck geared towards making this incredibly unwieldy appendage slightly less unwieldy. Yep. Yeah. Well, and it, it's just 
stands out to me so much that we we questioned so often why this whole group had long necks and what the benefit was. And that question out just exponentially grows more interesting and and like I need the answer even more when we get to groups like this that had particularly long necks mm-hmm. yeah of were you doing something weird compared to other sauropods like or were you <laughs> just doing what they were doing but better or in a unusual way like mm-hmm. why are you stand out from the group that already has unreasonably long necks yeah yeah was there something about the diet that in a regular sauropod ecosystem, a more typical one, you only needed this length neck, but in Mementosaurus, where it was hanging out, it needed an extra long neck, or it yes. was advantageous to have an even longer neck than typical. Absolutely. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. I guess one more tie-in for you is uh, what interesting connection between giraffes and dinosaurs. I think we've talked about maybe on our show, but I'm sure you talked about Giraffes have the same number of vertebrae in their neck as we do, and right. they're just extremely long. Whereas sauropods, they got extremely long, but like Sabrina was saying, 18 neck vertebrae. Yep. They kept stacking them in too. So they had both things going for it. Not only longer vertebrae, but also increasing the number yes. of vertebrae. A yeah. bunch of them and they're big. <laughs> <laughs> well, very cool. We have talked about uh, mammalian weirdo and we've talked about dinosaur weirdos. I, my bit of news that I brought today is about cute animals. <laughs> <laughs> this news is about fossil kangaroo rats. Nice. Uh, and it's actually, I'm, I'm, this is very exciting. It is the oldest and largest known fossil kangaroo rat. Oh. Mm. This research uh, was published in Peer J by Joshua Samuels, Jonathan Khalid, and Robert Hunt. Josh Samuels works at the Gray Fossil Site. Yep. Uh, along with me which is how I knew about this study. (laughs) And indeed, in the blog post, we will link to a press release about this on the Gray Fossil Site and Museum website, which was written by me. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Yeah, sometimes I cheat, and I I do the same news report for two different jobs, uh, which makes it easier for me. You got the inside scoop. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. So, a little bit of background. The rodent subfamily Diplomyonae includes kangaroo rats and kangaroo mice. These are hopping rodents that are found across uh, various parts of North America, mostly Western North America, in open, arid environments. They do really good in deserts and shrublands and dry places. Among their special adaptations include particularly large ears, which are good for hearing sounds in open environments and also avoiding predators where, in an environment where there's not a lot of cover. And they hop. They hop around on two feet. Uh, which is also interpreted as being good for escaping predators in open environments where there's not a lot of places to hide. These are part of a larger group called heteromyids, which includes other arid hopping rodents like pocket mice. This study describes a new species of fossil kangaroo rat. This comes from the John Day fossil beds in Oregon, specifically from a portion of the beds uh, that is dated to the early Miocene around 23 million years ago. The fossil is one almost complete skull, part of a foot, and one tail vertebra. Huh. Which, as these things go, not bad. (laughs) Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Mammal? (laughs) Yeah. All those teeth. (laughs) Being from the early Miocene makes this the oldest known example of of a part of the kangaroo rat subfamily. They identified it as a new genus and species, Oramis Zeros, which is a very cool name. I like it. 
and it has an interesting mixture of features that give us some insights into the evolution of this group. Some of the features of this fossil are similar to the earlier members of this heteromyid group of rodents, and some are more like modern kangaroo rats. For example, on the mammalian skull, in the back of the skull, we have these bulbs called auditory bullae, which, is, which house the bony components of the ears. Aramis auditory bullae are particularly large, similar to what we see in kangaroo rats today. But the foramen magnum, the hole in the skull where the spine comes in to meet the brain, is positioned more backwards on the skull, which is normal for most animals because their heads are held in front of the body. But in bipedal animals like humans and kangaroo rats, that hole tends to be more underneath. So you're keeping the quirkiness. Yes, so this animal, it has a skull, parts of the skull shape are like, its ancestors and parts are more like modern kangaroo rats. So while modern kangaroo rats are large-eared, two-legged hoppers, they interpret that this one was probably a large-eared, four-legged hopper. Huh. Had not evolved that bipedal hopping behavior at this point. This gives us some idea of the order of events in the evolution of kangaroo rats. Also, and this is a little bit of a, a, a just an add-on, it's the largest known kangaroo rat. <laughs> Modern kangaroo rats, Josh tells me, get up to 12 inches long, half of which is tail. Wow. They have very long tails. Oramis is estimated to have been perhaps a third larger than that. Okay. So perhaps, you know, 16 inches long, <laughs> half of which was probably tail, <laughs> which as kangaroo rats go, is quite large. Yeah, yeah. that's a decent yeah. size. <laughs> Uh, then there are a couple of interesting notes about the timing of this uh, discovery. The early Miocene is a time period where there's more uh, a cooling and drying trend in North America, leading to more open habitats, which might be related to the evolution of this, these adaptations for open environments. They also point out that this is a time where certain of the kangaroo rats' main predators, like rattlesnakes, are showing up in these regions for the first time which might also be related to these adaptations, which might also be related to that large body size for helping to avoid predators. And finally, in their big comparison across all of these rodents in this family, they note that this uh, helps to resolve the evolutionary pattern that dry habitat adaptations and large body size have evolved multiple times across this group of kangaroo rats, kangaroo mice, and pocket rats and pocket or pocket gophers and pocket mice. So there's this cool pattern of repetition across these mammals. Very neat. And and like they still interpret it as a hopper even if it was on four feet. Yeah. They did because they have part of the foot. Yes, that's what I was uh, said, assuming. Foot seems to be sort of some features that you'd expect from a hopper, but not yet bipedal, which I believe is how pocket mice do it. Okay. Pocket mice are four-legged hoppers, kind of like rabbits. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Is like, so we we haven't shifted to the kangaroo, right? Bouncing on two feet, uh, style. Very interesting. Now I'd be curious what its tail was doing, uh, just because they use I know they use their tail as a counterbalance, similar to kangaroos, sure. I believe. Uh, so I'd be wondering if on four legs, do you need as long a tail? Yeah, and maybe they didn't. Yeah, they only had one tail vertebra. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, hard to tell from one vertebra. <laughs> yep. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was wondering the same thing about hopping on four legs, but it makes more sense if it's bunny style, where it's really the back legs doing the hopping and the front legs are sort of there for stability and support and maybe part of the motion for the hopping, but they're not actually doing the powerful push part of the hop. Yeah, yeah. It's not the the Bugs Bunny four-legged hop. <laughs> I had the exact same image right. in my head. <laughs> Bugs <Yep>. Bunny. <laughs> I was thinking a Springbok where they like jump on four legs like straight up in the air, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Yeah, kangaroo rats, as far as I know, they, they hop in a way very similar to kangaroos. Mm-hmm. Big back feet, relatively short front feet, and it's that rapid kind of erratic hopping motion. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they It's a from what I've heard, extremely convergent evolution of a very unusual feature, considering that those are really the only two groups on our planet today that have done this. Yeah. Yeah. I I like to, you described it as cute, but if you took it a different way and you said they found a 16 inch long kangaroo rat that can jump, <laughs> you could have a very different picture in your mind. Yes. Over foot long leaping rodent. <laughs> I stand by it. Here, the best part, I think the best part of this is the implication that these all the way back in the Miocene, when the first rattlesnakes were showing up in these environments, they had lots of food, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which makes me very happy. <laughs> well, and uh, that was one of the things I was thinking about talking about their hopping. There's a whole series of slow-mo videos of them dodging rattlesnake strikes mm-hmm. because of their ability to jump and like even kick the snake away you know to try to avoid being bitten like a rabbit yep and now i'm picturing a, a particularly large version doing that yes. as it's encountering rattlesnakes <laughs> early early on the slow-mo of it getting hit in the face by like a bigger kangaroo rat and like oh no <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, that is the end of that news. I have a little bit of bonus extra news. Not bonus news like on our Patreon, but like a little (laughs) bit of bonus for this episode. Uh, I have an update to a previous news that we discussed. Back in episode 154, our live birth episode, we presented, you will presented on this, a study by Christine Sosiak et al. in Biology Letters describing the oldest known army ant. Yes, I remember that one. This is an army ant preserved in Baltic amber from the Eocene. Uh, It was very exciting because it was the oldest known army ant and from Europe where they don't live today. Yes. So it was an unusual place for them. We have a science update to this bit of news. This paper, which was published in November, has been retracted. Uh Uh Oh. (laughs) And there's a very interesting background to why it was retracted. So uh, the paper itself has been retracted. Uh, there, There is a retraction published. But also, Christine, this main author, uh, tweeted about this, which Ooh. is how I learned about it. So in the blog post, I will put a link to that Twitter thread where the author describes the process behind this. So very quickly for an update for everybody, the authors note that shortly after they published the paper, two other researchers reached out to them to say that they are aware of instances of army ants in Baltic amber collections, historic collections that are actually in copal, which is subfossil resin. That's kind of the early stage of amber when it's only, you know, usually thousands of years old. We get a lot of that from like the late ice age. They pointed out that you have a lot of these historic collections with amber collected in the 1920s and 1930s with these misidentified or mixed in 
younger specimens that for one reason or another ended up in there and have been sitting there for a hundred years, uh, uncaught. Oh. Now these authors, uh, their specimen came from a historic Baltic Amber collection in Harvard. So they did their due diligence and they ran chemical analyses on their specimen, the spectroscopic analysis, compared it with Baltic Amber and Copal and found it is not Baltic Amber. Wow. It is not from the Eocene. It is much, much younger. They weren't able to figure out where it's from, but it is not Baltic Amber, which means this is not the oldest known army ant, and it is not necessarily from Europe. Yes, we don't know where where th- this younger army ant came from. So they said those conclusions are no longer valid. We retract it. They did note in the retraction paper, uh, in the original paper, they identified as a new species. And they point out it, it's possibly still a new species yes. <laughs> because they compared it morphologically. But all the other stuff is no longer uh, true. And they make the note that this now makes three different collections at three museums in three countries where this kind of mis- mix-up has happened. Hmm. So they put out the general call to all researchers to be careful with your historic Baltic Amber collections. Interesting. So I saw this come up, and I, I couldn't resist bringing it up here on the podcast as an update from what we talk Because we, we never get to talk about this side of the thing yep. with studies, well, we rarely do, where a study has been largely challenged or even retracted. That's not going to make the news the same way that the oldest, the army ant originally did. So it's always nice to get a a glimpse at sort of every side of the scientific process. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, very curious once you said retracted because it's got to be something big for a paper to be retracted. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, yeah, now now it's the the task of sorting or or being hyper aware when you deal with these materials Mm -hmm. is hopefully at the forefront of uh, researchers doing similar studies. Yeah. It's nice that at least they have something to show from it, that it might still be a species. They might just end up making a new paper (laughs) 2.0. We think it's a new species. Yes. Well, and kudos to the researchers who contacted them uh, and kudos to this group of researchers, Uh, not only for, of course, you know, going through the proper paces and well, confirm attempting to confirm. And in this case, failing to confirm their original conclusions, but also tweeting about it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very transparent, very open way of communicating about the reality of what happens sometimes in scientific studies. Yeah, that is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it also uh, notes the hazards, which, you know, have come up before of historic collections that the rigors or, you know, regular habits of fossil identification and collection were not always Mm -hmm. in place or may have you may have just gotten one particularly reckless collector that was very good at collecting and collected a bunch of stuff. And now we have this backlog of maybe not as well identified or cataloged or, you know, preserved or misidentified, you know, fully misidentified things that have just snuck in over the centuries of paleontology. It's a good note that we don't know what the situation was when this was collected over a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's something, you know, segueing back to talking about our guest, uh, that's something that has happened with dinosaurs a bunch. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, a yes. lot of these old dinosaur collections that have had to be revised. It's ever ongoing with dinosaurs like Brontosaurus too, which 
used to be Sabrina's favorite dinosaur, and then it got replaced with a potosaurus when they said, well, but it's probably just another species of a potosaurus, if not the same species. And then it was revised in a recent paper, and then we've been hearing whisperings that <laughs> maybe it's going to go away again. So <laughs> oh, I might have to make peace with a potosaurus again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a real roller coaster of emotion for Sabrina. It really is, yeah. <laughs> Should pick a new favorite dinosaur. <laughs> I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is all the news uh, that we have. But before we f- move on to our main discussion, thank you so much, Sabrina and Garrett, for joining us today. Uh, before we let you go, if our listeners want to go check out I Know Dino, what are some of the things that have uh, cropped up in your recent episodes? What's been going on over at that podcast? Ooh, well, we do have an upcoming <laughs> It's going to be a few days after April Fool's, but it is April foolery-ish, and that just means there's there's some tangentially related dinosaur things and maybe a little bit of a more focus on birds. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow we ended up in this thing where every April Fool's we end up talking about birds because it's like, well, birds are dinosaurs, and then, I don't yeah, know, we can't stop. <laughs> last April Fool's, we did uh, the dodo. <laughs> nice. That's fun. I like it. I like it felt fitting yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah and we've got some great interviews coming up so uh yeah thank you for being here and if uh, anybody wants to hear about some latest dinosaur discoveries and check out our show where i know dino uh, you can search for dinosaur podcast or i know dino.com and uh, we also have a patreon patreon.com slash i know dino yep and it's K-N-O-W as in like, I know about dinosaurs. It is sort of a, we picked it because it rhymed. Yes. But it is. it sounds like we're really like full of ourselves. Like we know everything about dinosaurs. <laughs> we know, we're learning. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody, we're still learning. And yeah, it's a it's an aspirational title is what I sometimes say. <laughs> yes, yes. I'd like to know dino. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we will have those links uh, in our episode description as well to uh, your page and we'll also throw your patreon link down there uh, for sure because we are always encouraging people to support uh, scientific education efforts uh, like these podcasts yeah thank you also in an upcoming episode david and will you'll be starring in one of our interviews so that's true people of this show you should head over for that episode at the very least yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of fun <laughs> yeah it's fantastic to talk to you guys this was incredibly fun Yeah, so anybody uh, out there who really likes the sound of our voices, uh, go at least listen to that one episode of I Know Dino, and you'll get to hear us. There is, uh, if we want to tantalize people, we talked about a bit of news Mm -hmm. that we have not talked about on our podcast and won't even be in bonus news for patrons. So if you want that extra bit of news, you got to go check out I Know Dino. Now it's like a comics comics crossover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We had the asterisks down at the bottom. Yes. Uh, Thank you both so much for being here. Uh, We really appreciate it. Uh, And perhaps we'll get to collaborate with you again someday in the future. Yeah. Sounds great. Thanks for having us. Uh, But for our listeners, that is not the end of this episode, just the end of the news. In fact, the, the, the meat of the main topic has yet to begin after the break. We will get into our main subject, which is not dinosaur related. Uh, In fact, it is kind of almost the opposite of dinosaurs. We are talking about Sicilians. Yeah, it doesn't relate to much, really. (laughs) Very, very un-dinosaur-like. Stay tuned to find out what they are like uh, very shortly.
all modern-day amphibians belong to a group called Lysamphibia. Mm -hmm. You've got your caudata, which are salamanders and salamander things, your anura, which are frogs, and gymnophiona, which is the group that includes Sicilians. All of them are weird. Yes. Amphibians are just kind of weird animals. They've got that really thin, slimy skin that they use for breathing through. They lay weird fish eggs. Mm-hmm. From our mammalian perspective, uh, they're just kind of they're just kind of odd. They metamorphose like a butterfly. Yeah, they're super weird. Salamanders, the group Caudata or Eurodella, are as amphibians go, pretty standard. Yes, that they're basically lizard shaped. That's a pretty common way for vertebrate animals to be shaped. Frogs. Anura or Salienta. These are all different group names of different levels that basically mean this group. Mm -hmm. Frogs and toads. Frogs are utterly bizarre. Yes. But they're so common and familiar that we forget how weird they are. Because they, it is easy to forget that they are hyper specialized to hopping. So weird. They're, they're just a weird shape. They have a weird lifestyle. We did a whole episode about frogs, episode 91. And then there are Sicilians, which are somehow the weirdest of the amphibians. Yes. They are a separate group, so frogs and salamanders. So frogs and toads are anura. Salamanders and newts are caudata. Those two are grouped together into a group called batrachia. And then outside that group is gymnophiona, or Sicilians. Sicilians are worm-shaped. Yep. They have long, wormy bodies. They have no limbs. They tend to burrow around in the soil. They are amphibians. They've got slimy bodies. They lay soft eggs, they do all the amphibian things, but they're very strange and they are very poorly understood. Now, for all of the completionists out there, there is actually a fourth group of list amphibians, the Albinerpatontids, <laughs> which are a completely extinct group of amphibians that I, for the purposes of this episode, don't know anything about, and that's not who we're talking about. So, apologies to all the Albinerpatontid fans. Uh, submit your requests now for an Albinerpatontid episode. <laughs> Sicilians... The focus of our episode, worm-shaped, worm-like. They even live like worms. Yes. They are worm amphibians. They are not very well understood, especially in comparison to the other amphibians. And there are a handful of reasons for these that also bring us into discussion of their habits and distribution and such. Excellent. One of the reasons that gymnophionans, Sicilians, aren't as well understood is that there just appear to be less of them. There are... About 800 known living species of salamanders, and there are well over 7,000 known living species of frogs. Sicilians come in at just over 200 species. Yeah. 200 known species. The most up-to-date records that I found uh, said 215. Yeah, so we're not, you know, dealing with just a handful of, like, there's still a number of them, but compared to the other two, which are also, like, numerous for groups, like, Right. Frogs are doing very well today. Frog, yeah, they're all over the place. <laughs> like other amphibians, Sicilians are also generally rather small. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not all super tiny, uh, but they tend to be on the small side. The smallest Sicilians, uh, from what I've read, can be down to seven or eight centimeters. Okay. So about three inches. So actually worm-sized. Yes, exactly. Like, would look just like an earthworm yep. crawling around in the dirt. Although... There are a number of different species, uh, particularly in the genus Cecilia, which grow to over a meter. Yep. And the largest Sicilian in the world, the largest one on record is Cecilia thompsoni, which I believe is native to Colombia, which has been recorded up to one and a half meters wow. 
or five feet. Yeah. Which is quite a worm. I at, always... At that point, I think you're a snake. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think you've earned snake when you're five feet long. I always wonder with these wormy-esque critters, because you'll hear about things like this every now and then that are surprisingly long. And I'm like, but how girthy are you? Like, are we talking mm-hmm. Sharpie? Are we talking... Are you still pencil width, but just ribbony long or are you just this sausage and the long sicilians i think are more sausage yeah like that's what i thought they're not, i don't think they're quite like a pit viper no uh but they're not you know they're not like a tapeworm yeah exactly super thin but you hear that with like uh sand striker worms where they're like three meters long but i think they're still like you know fairly thin around very thin sicilians also tend to live in places where they're hard to see yep they tend to be burrowers. Uh, Sicilians are traditionally fossorial. They're burrowers. They live in soil, in the forest, or in the riverbanks. Some are not strictly diggers, but even those tend to be in the leaf litter and under stones and vegetation and stuff. Although, there is a family of Sicilians, Typhlonectidae, that are aquatic. Okay. Uh, they're considered aquatic or semi-aquatic. But even those tend to, it seems, spend a lot of time down in the mud Mm -hmm. of the river or stream. All right. Sicilians are generally considered to be predators of soil invertebrates. So they've been reported eating worms, ants, termites, uh, insect eggs, and larvae. I did see it noted in one place that there are reports that larger species of Sicilians uh, are known to eat Occasionally small vertebrates, frogs, lizards, uh, burrowing snakes was on that list. Speaking of what they eat, here's just a couple of fun things I learned about them. When they grab their prey, they have, you know, little amphibian teeth. Some Sicilians are known to then drag the prey into burrows Mm -hmm. where they could uh, finish them. Others I have seen noted that they will, uh, particularly this was talking about worms, they would get a bite on their prey and then wind their body around the prey. Oh. Kind of like snakes. And I hesitate to say that because snakes are constrictors. Yes. They're doing something very specific when they, they do They are that. very specialized. And I, as far as I know, Sicilians are not constricting, but they're just making it harder for the prey to get away. Yeah, they're just getting a hold on it with their whole body. And then if in, they can't wriggle out of there because there's a whole body just in the way. And uh, because Sicilians are very... Uh, appeasing for our podcast. Not only do they do a thing that is kind of like snakes, Sicilians also death roll. Yeah, they do. (laughs) I figured you've probably seen videos of this. Yep. They will get a bite on a thing and then rotate their whole body to try to tear a piece off of it. Which is one of the things that makes them so bizarre because to my knowledge, and there might be salamanders that do this that I'm unaware of, Mm. but like all the salamanders I'm familiar with and this is like a feature of frogs and toads swallow whole. Right. Like they, they don't chew. Most of them have, even if they have teeth, they're not substantial teeth. Right. Typically it's like a lot of salamander teeth are knobs that point into the mouth, right. but they're to, not taking pieces off. Yeah. And they're probably not even going to puncture much. I, this is just to make it a little bit more difficult for you to get out. If I didn't inhale you on the first gulp, I can get another try in, but like Sicilians have, toothy like sharp toothy mouths a lot of the time and can take chunks of stuff off <laughs> yeah they'll tear off a piece so yeah they will act a little bit like snakes and also a little bit like crocs yeah which is pretty cool but they are typically underground or underwater which also makes it hard to get a hold of them mm-hmm. and on top of that compared to other amphibians sicilians also have a more limited distribution 
Sicilians are found in humid tropical areas. Right, right, right. And that's it. They are found all over the globe. They are found in South and Central America, West and East Africa, across Southeast Asia, including India, and into Indonesia, the Seychelles, the Philippines, Sri Lanka. They're all around the equator, but only in the tropics. Yes. Which not only means that they have a more limited distribution than, say, frogs and salamanders, but also they tend to only live in dense tropical environments where it's harder for us to get uh, access to those environments anyway. Mm -hmm. I did see one article that I was reading that very astutely pointed out that one of the ways that this distribution has led to us just understanding Sicilians less is that they are entirely absent from both North America and Europe. Yes. Which historically is where the science was happening. Yep. (laughs) So they've just got a whole lot going against them. Uh, One other article said, and I quote, with no external trace of their presence in the soil, finding Sicilians usually requires a lot of exploratory digging. Yeah. They're just, they're rarer, they're harder to find, and so there are tons of open questions still about Sicilian habits, uh, relationships to each other, so the, the taxonomy within the group, and all sorts of other aspects. And in fact, we are continuing to make major discoveries about Sicilians. Here are some examples. <laughs> in 2021, a study reported the first confirmed record of Sicilians in the country of Bhutan. <laughs> In South Asia, where it was suspected that they would be, because they're in the adjacent countries, but they weren't ever reported there scientifically until two years ago. Wow. In 2012, a study that did a big survey of Sicilians in Northeast India identified not only a number of species, but a new family of Sicilians. Wow. The Chiquilidae, not just species, not just genus, new family which uh, is apparently the 10th known family of Sicilians, although that number uh, is debated. Oh, yeah. So we won't go into more about that. <laughs> that that doesn't surprise me. We discovered a family 10 years ago of these. And then one more. I'll throw it out there. A 2021 report through Florida Fish and Wildlife <laughs> reported multiple records of Sicilians in the Tamiami Canal, uh, all of which are Typhlonectes natans a species native to Colombia and Venezuela, which is aquatic and common in the pet trade. <laughs> so these are not native Sicilians to Florida. They are the first record of introduced Sicilians to Florida. There we go. Uh, the report does say it is hard to know for sure if they are an established population mm-hmm. as of yet or what impact that might have on the Florida the, the, the utterly messed up Florida ecosystem. Yep. So we are continuing to learn new things and find Sicilians in places we didn't, I hadn't seen them before. It's, it won a, I feel like it's a good reminder of sometimes something as simple as being underground can be enough to really change our understanding and interaction with uh, an organism because we are so bad at being underground. Like, right. We're also bad at being in dense tropical environments with our scientific equipment. So like, there's limitations to us being the kind of animal we are <laughs> to studying. I mean, it's why things reference all the time how little we know about the deep sea because mm-hmm. we are not supposed to be down there. And underground is another one of those where there's not. it's not easy for us to set up traps because you have to dig a hole to, to do anything to mm-hmm. study them under there. So it's something as simple as that and living in very specific spots can make a species or a group 
very hard yep. to study. It also doesn't help that Sicilians are, like, salamanders are kind of cute, mm-hmm. and frogs are immensely charismatic, and Sicilians are shaped like worms. Yep. Uh, that That's not helping their case. No. They, they, they look like worms. Well, it, like, I, they often have the texture. Yes. They're slimy. They're often color, the color of worms. Yep. There, it's, it's not <laughs> it's not a good look for Sicilians well, it's, for attracting human interest. I wouldn't be surprised if there's tons of people who have seen a Sicilian without realizing they've seen a Sicilian. Oh, yeah. Because think it's a worm. You scooped up a thing of dirt. A worm fell out. You didn't know it had teeth. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> you went on with your day. Now, so far, I'm sure that many of our listeners are thinking to themselves, yeah, that's interesting. A relatively rare... Uh, mostly digging worm-shaped group of amphibians. That is weird. And I am here to tell you, you have no idea. I would like now to go on a tour of Sicilian anatomy. (laughs) Let's get to know what makes Sicilians Sicilians because they are so incredibly unique in their anatomical features and they are so weird. Yep. Let's start at the head because that's a good place to start. The Sicilian skull is unmistakable in comparison to other things. It is heavily adapted for a burrowing lifestyle. The skull is flattened, very sturdy, very compact. There are tons of places around the skull where multiple bones have fused tightly into basically a compound bone. This is all over the skull. There's a bunch of skull uh, bones in the back of the skull that have fused together. The skull, The bones in the roof of the mouth are fused. The lower jaw, which typically in most vertebrates is many bones. In amphibians and reptiles, it's many bones. In Sicilians, it's effectively two bones on each side. Yeah. Because they've all just fused together. Typically, Sicilians have two rows of teeth in the upper jaw and one or two rows in the lower jaw. These are the typical amphibian pedicillate teeth. Uh, They tend to have one or two cusps, relatively simple teeth. Mm -hmm. The jaw itself, the mouth in many Sicilians, is kind of underneath and back a little bit. Kind of like a shark. Yeah. They kind of have that shark-shaped face to them. You've got the nose and then the mouth down and back a little bit. Right. Uh, It it makes me think, this is a very specific comparison, but it makes me think of the crate Dragon from Mandalorian. Sure. Has that very bullet-like front of the face. That rostrum. Yep. And then the mouth back behind it because it's a burrower yep and sicilians do they have complex skulls the skulls tend to be very streamlined also unsurprisingly they typically have very highly reduced eyes uh some sicilian species reportedly have no eyes yeah some have eyes but they're under a layer of skin and some have eyes that are covered up by bone (laughs) they're just buried within the bones of the skull (laughs) <laughs> where they're not being used. That's some xenomorph stuff right there. <laughs> Sicilians also have tentacles. <laughs> this is a feature that is a very distinctive of Sicilians. They all have these paired sensory tentacles on the face, one on each side between the eye and the nostril, that are used for sensing their environment. Uh, it's even in the skull, there is a foramen where the tentacles. You can see it in the skull, the presence of that tentacle. Nice. Um, apparently, here's just a little sign, but in one particular group of Sicilians, uh, one of the early branching groups, I believe, the tentacle is very large and very close to the eye, so much so that they, the tissues are connected. Whoa. With the effect that when the tentacle 
is fully extruded to its full length. It pulls the eye out of the skull. <laughs> because Sicilians are just kind of a journey in body horror. <laughs> a little bit. Speaking of weird stuff uh, with their tissues, Sicilians also have a unique distinctive jaw mechanism called the dual jaw closing mechanism. And what this means is, so most vertebrate animals, like ourselves, when the jaw closes, the muscles that are actually closing the jaw are mandibular muscles, muscles around the jaw itself. Sicilians, they also use those muscles, but in conjunction with a second set of muscles, the interhyoideous muscles in the throat. Okay. No other group of animals does this. And it is thought to be uh, probably because they've reduced the skull stuff so much that those mandibular muscles are no longer able to do it by themselves. So they've had to co-opt these throat muscles to be part of their jaw closing mechanism. Yep, yep. Which is completely unique to Sicilians. That is super weird. While we're talking about their mouths, uh, because this was in the news not too long ago, there was a 2020 study that described enzymes in Sicilian saliva that they identified as being very similar to enzymes found in certain venomous animals. Yes. So there was the question, I think we talked about this on the podcast, the question came up of whether Sicilians are venomous. This has been questioned. Uh, Some have pointed out that this may or may not actually indicate venom and that more research will be needed. So for the time being, Sicilians are only maybe (laughs) venomous. Maybe have the potential to be. Uh, they are poisonous, though. So like a lot of frogs and salamanders, the mucus that they secrete uh, is often toxic and can be uh, very dangerous for small animals. Yeah, as, as like extreme as that might seem, that's pretty standard amphibian stuff right there. Yep. Amphibians just tend to be dangerous yeah, to toxic. touch. Yeah, just <laughs> toxic just, skin. Just their skin. That's just the thing they yeah, do. That's just their sweat <laughs> is poison. Moving on from the head to the body. Sicilians are long. They have very long worm-shaped bodies. They have no limbs. They don't have any limb girdles. So the shoulder stuff, the the pelvis and all that, none of that's there. Apparently, they don't even have sacral vertebrae. Wow. Even in snakes, in snakes, there is a patch of vertebrae around the cloaca that are distinct. They are the cloacal vertebrae, sort of where the hip would be. Apparently, Sicilians don't even have that. Wow. It's just vertebrae. <laughs> and also, like snakes, they have achieved longness by adding vertebrae. Yes. Uh, reportedly, Sicilians can have uh, just under 100 vertebrae up to just under 300 vertebrae, which is very similar to snakes. Those are, those are numbers that are pretty standard. Sicilians come in a variety of colors and patterns. They can be dull colors, but they could also be like oranges and yellows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They can be stripy and splotchy. They also have skin folds along the body, what are called annuli. So they look like earthworms. Yeah, they have that segmented look to them. Mm -hmm. Apparently also, uh, many Sicilians, especially the early branching groups, the basal groups, apparently have scales inside those folds. Huh. I have nothing further to say about that. Huh, in fact, is what it says in my notes. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Yep. Okay. I mean, sure. Sure, sure. Sicilians tend to be covered in mucus because they're amphibians. And they also move in a variety of ways, much like snakes. Uh, They can slither kind. They can use lateral undulation. 
or a variety of different movement styles, but I have seen it described a particular style of movement that Sicilians employ. They have special body muscles just under the skin that work to squeeze the body cavity to generate a force that lengthens the body. Oh, okay, okay. That provides the force they need to shove their head through the dirt. Yeah. Because they're digging with their face. Yes. And so the body will contract to force the head forward. Right. To push through the sediment. Okay, yeah. That's that's really unique to do with your body. Yeah. But that's it's got kind of the uh the insect flying mechanism of I'm just going to flex the walls of my body to flap my wings. Like that's well, it's it's a little bit like treating yourself like a tube of toothpaste. Yes. Which is weird. Yes. It's a very weird thing to do. Well, and once again, it, you know, to a less extreme degree, but still very worm-like. Like that's how mm-hmm. worms stretch in the soil is they stretch they compress their body and stretch it out. Right. And then pull the body up to the head. That's what they're doing just not quite as much they right. they can't spaghettify. Well, and they're doing it uh, with force. Yes. To push themselves forward. Weird. As amphibians, Sicilians breathe through a combination of gills, lungs, and their skin. Mm-hmm. The amphibians breathe through their skin. Also, like snakes, Sicilians will often have only one functional lung. That makes so sense. In snakes, it's the right lung is big and functional, and the left lung is a little vestigial thing. Uh, from what I was reading in Sicilians, some they some have two functional lungs, which is also true for snakes. Uh, it sounds like maybe which lung it is can vary in Sicilians. Huh. I did not find a lot of details, but I did find at least one thing that, that cited left or right. Hmm. Which is weird. And one genus of Sicilian, a Tretokoana, which is known from two specimens, <laughs> appears to be lungless. Yeah. No lungs. Which is not, that is unusual for a vertebrate, or for a tetrapod especially. Mm-hmm. But there are lungless salamanders. Yes, there are. So it is not unheard of for amphibians. Although a tetrakoana measures almost a meter long. Wow. I saw over 80 centimeters or two and a half feet, which makes it the largest known lungless tetrapod. Absolutely. Which is kind of a cool claim to fame to have. Yeah, like you're, you're, you are getting... Up to, like, only fish are supposed to be able to do that without lungs. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's super weird. Sicilians want to be fish and also snakes and also worms and all sorts of stuff. I just, I like a little bit of what everyone's doing. (laughs) Now, we have mentioned a whole bunch of the weird stuff about Sicilian anatomy. As we progress towards the back end of the body, we come across the thing that, for my money is the weirdest thing about Sicilians. It's not the weirdest thing. And I'm going to say it, and some people are going to be like, is that weird? Because there's so many weird things about them. Mm -hmm. But this is the thing that weirds me out the most about Sicilians. (laughs) Apparently, most Sicilians do not have a tail. Yeah. Yep. We've talked about this with, with snakes, the question of, are snakes mostly neck or mostly tail? And the answer is that snakes are mostly torso. Yes. Uh, They have a long torso, and then there's a cloaca, and then behind that is a relatively short tail. Yes. Early branching Sicilians are known to have short tails, very much like snakes. But most Sicilians don't have a tail, which is so weird to me that you have this little head and then this long body, and it just ends in a butt. Yep. There's nothing. It's just just butt. Yep. Which also means... 
that the Sicilian, I've never seen a Sicilian skeleton in mm-hmm. front of me, but I can only imagine that the Sicilian vertebral column is the atlas, which is the name for the first vertebra. Uh, in, in most vertebrates, uh, in tetrapods, there is the atlas and the axis, which yes. are the first two. Amphibians don't have an axis. So <laughs> the atlas, and then there's no sacral vertebrae. There's no, I have, I didn't see anything citing that there are specific neck vertebrae. Mm-hmm. So a Sicilian is the atlas and then one to 300 undifferentiated trunk vertebrae, which is horrifying. Well, it sounds like a creature made in spore. Well, it sounds like <laughs> someone was told, what do you think a snake skeleton yes, looks exactly. like? Yes, exactly. And they say, well, there's probably like maybe a special neck vertebrae. I've heard of that. And then I assume that it's just... 200 copied and pasted vertebrae. And I, as a person who is very familiar with the vertebrae, the column of snakes, am unhappy about yes. this. Yep. I don't like that. Well, it's, I'm, I'm picturing Spore when you first make your model and you drag the skeleton out to make your creature longer. It'll usually just skinny it down and you can see the vertebrae and they're just little cylinders over and over that just end in a little rounded butt. Yep. And that's... That's a Sicilian. That's a Sicilian. It's just a skinny base level spore creature. Just it. I, now, I like I said, I'm not familiar. Snake vertebrae differ quite a bit from front to back. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that is true of Sicilians. If there are any people out there listening yes. who are very familiar with the Sicilian skeletal anatomy, who want to message us and reassure me <laughs> that there is actually a good deal of differentiation <laughs> from front to back and that they are not just unholy little friendship bracelets <laughs> but until then i will continue to have nightmares also ending in just a butt very worm-like very worm-like that's once again another very earthworm-esque <laughs> quality just as a head at the front and there's a butt at the end yep. and that's that's a worm yep worms don't have tails um there are sicilians who are swimmers Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it is very often the case that swimming animals, like sea snakes, for example, will have laterally flattened tails. So they're side to side, they're they're flattened, like a fish fin. Yes. Um, aquatic Sicilians have a laterally flattened back end of the body. Yeah. Not a tail, because they don't have a tail. Yep. They're, the back end of the body is just acting as the tail. I am displeased about this. <laughs> While we're in the back... Uh, where the cloaca is. So the cloaca, of course, the all-purpose uh, opening for b- 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 amphibians and reptiles, generally. Multi-purpose orifice. Multi-purpose orifice. Male Sicilians have an eversible, so inside out a bull, uh, sex organ. Makes sense. Okay, gotcha. It is not a penis. It is called a phallodium. Oh, neat. Because Sicilians reproduce with internal fertilization. Which is unusual for amphibians. Not, not always the case with amphibians. A lot of them are external fertilizers like fish. Which, this is actually kind of a normal feeling thing yeah. for us, you know, mammals <laughs> who are all about internal fertilization. Well, this is the thing they looked at us and went, yeah! yeah. <laughs> Stop it! Stop picking things! Stop just picking and choosing body things from different groups of animals. Once they're done, they'll leave this planet. <laughs> Once they have all of... Yep. How many spleens did you get? <laughs> uh, they fertilize internally um, with this inside-out organ. Now, we have reached the end. It's just top to bottom, mm-hmm. head to butt, <laughs> utterly bizarre anatomy. But while we are at the back end and talking about reproduction, it, it is essential, I think, that we take a little bit of a detour and talk about Sicilian reproduction. 
uh, which is a little bit of a step off of the anatomy train. But when else are we going to get to talk about Sicilian reproduction? And if we never get to talk about it on this podcast, it will be an actual shame. Uh, legitimate. Let's talk about how Sicilians make more Sicilians. Like amphibians tend to be, Sicilians are often oviparous, egg-laying, although many are live-bearing. Yes. Uh, this has seemingly evolved multiple times within Sicilians. Hmm. And I saw one reference that said as many as half of Sicilian species yeah, I've, I've might heard be live-bearing. Referenced a ton. Yep. Some Sicilians have larvae. Uh, often aquatic larvae with fins <laughs> that will then metamorphose into adults. Weird. Uh, some have direct development, which, as we learned, uh, I think, during our live birth episode, 154, uh, tends to just mean that they already metamorphosed by the time they were born. Yes. Which is a weird thing. That's not unique to Sicilians, but it is a, it is a strange thing to do. Sicilians that lay eggs apparently tend to lay them on land. Huh. Which is a weird thing for an amphibian to do. Very. Usually they have to put them in the water. And also, egg-laying Sicilians tend to stay with the eggs. Yes. They tend to guard the eggs. They are good parents in that regard. And speaking of being good parents, Will's smiling because Will knows where this is going. This is one of my favorite good. animal factoids. This, this is one of the most famous things about yes. Sicilians. <laughs> in many species of Sicilians, babies, the newborns, have... Teeth. Mm -hmm. These are not the teeth they will keep the rest of their lives. These are special baby teeth that have many cusps on them. The purpose of which is so that they can eat the skin off the body of their mother. Yes. For months, <laughs> they will spend eating the entire skin off of the mother. Now, let me elaborate. Uh, this is a special layer of skin that a mother Sicilian grow. So while the babies are developing, presumably before it's done before they show up, uh, the parent Sicilian will grow a special outer layer of skin that is full of fats and nutrients that is specifically there to provision uh, the babies. Yes. So the mother is not actually harmed <laughs> in this process. Yeah, they aren't skinning her down to the yes. muscle. <laughs> <laughs> this is a special outer layer of, of epidermis. This is called maternal dermatophagy. <laughs> and as far as we know, only Sicilians do this. This is an unusual thing. And it is a form of nutrient provisioning mm -hmm. for young, which a ton of animals do. Yep. Mammals, probably most famously, mammals produce milk to feed to their young to give them nutrients. Birds will go foraging for food and then regurgitate it. For their young, Sicilians grow an extra layer of skin so that their babies can spend months voraciously tearing it off of their body with their specialized skin-peeling baby teeth. Yep. So it's really not all that weird. Yeah. No, this is their version of nursing. This is just their version <laughs> of nurse. It's just their version of nursing. Why are you screaming so much? Yep. It is the videos I've seen are I, so good. I think, and I could be wrong about this. I think the videos of this behavior are why I know Sicilians will death roll. Yep. yep. <laughs> I'm pretty Same. sure I'm pretty sure this is where I've seen that behavior. Same. Is where they're peeling the skin off of their doting parent. Well, and this is also mucusy amphibian skin. So it's just of course. slime covered babies chewing on a slime covered mom, pulling off slime covered hunks of skin. So it's just 
goo and <laughs> Sicilians are just Cronenberg yes, creations. It's just Cronenberg all the way down to their lack of tail. It's just down to their butt. <laughs> this behavior has been observed in at least three different species. Okay. Which are phylogenetically widespread. Okay. So they are not very closely related to each other, which suggests that this is an ancestral trait. Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. goes way back. In fact, one, the paper that described the second instance, because it was, I think, one from Africa and one from South America or something. And these are completely different families of Sicilians. The title of that paper was 100 Million Years of Skin Feeding. Because <laughs> this behavior may very well go back to the Cretaceous period. This is just a thing they've been doing. Yeah. It is also noteworthy that in some live-bearing species, those baby teeth, those special teeth, are present in the embryos because they are using them <laughs> to eat the extra lining from the inside of the reproductive tract of the mother. Okay. Once again, this is a special grown lining. They are not just cannibalizing the parent. This is a lining inside. I, I saw... Multiple references. Some said it's the inside of the uterus and some said it's the oviduct. And I don't know. I, gotcha. I didn't get any more detail in there. But some epithelial lining within the reproductive tract. Yes. This is thought to possibly have evolved from the skin feeding behavior. All right. And not the other way around. That... Yeah. It's been, I, I saw that noted in a number of different papers that this may have evolved from skin feeding. Like you, you already have teeth. Why wait until you're out of the body? Yes, to grow this special extra provisioning. Well, it, it, that that makes that's such a like a, a, a odd parallel to like the placenta yep. growing an extra you know a specific uh, a lining. Which, as we talked about in episode one fifty four, lots of different live bearing animals yes. have grown something like a placenta. This one, they just skipped the like umbilical cord and went, what the, you're well, going to be intaking food when you they, grow up. They make the baby work for yeah, it. Yeah. Like get practice now. <laughs> start biting. Start working those muscles. Get those chompers. Yeah, get start, those throat start muscles. Start working all those weird <laughs> muscles you're using. Just stick out your tentacles from your face. Keep your eyes in there. Keep your eyes in that skull. That's where they belong. <laughs> you keep them you safe. Activate your throat muscles and get your button gear. <laughs> so at this point, uh, with all of that having been said, it is completely unremarkable, I think, for me to also point out that Sicilians have been reported to exhibit embryophagy. Yeah. Yep. Where some of the embryos will eat the other embryos. See, that's where I thought you were going. That completely reasonable route. Right. Well, because <laughs> normal animals do yeah. that. The sharks do that. Yeah. That's completely normal. No, that's the least weird thing that... They eat yes. <laughs> their babies. Also, uh, young of one particular uh, species of Sicilians have been noted to gather around and feed upon liquid coming from the mother's cloaca. Oh. Uh, which is a little bit milk feeling. Yeah. That's a little like producing a specific kind of fluid. Again, I didn't go into any more detail. I don't have any more uh, notes on what yes. that actually is. But suffice it to say that for all their weird... They're doing it in their weird Sicilian body horror way. Mm -hmm. But Sicilians are apparently very good at protecting and provisioning their young. Which... Like, th this is a rather extensive form of parental care. And, like, 
that's not unheard of in other amphibians, but that is not sure. the common trend in amphibian. Like, right. Well, and, and especially for like a, a the worm amphibian. Yes. Yeah. That is not a thing we think of as being a worm thing or even really a snake thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like long, the famous long bodied animals that these are kind of emulating. You know, there are snakes that exhibit parental care, but yes. not like this. No. Like Sicilians are actually really good parents. Like, you know, cause like other amphibians often will, you know, be very caring while placing the eggs, but often will then be like, all right, good luck. Like most reptiles and amphibians. I hope you become you know, tadpoles someday. And yet I'm going to go lay a whole other bunch of eggs elsewhere. Yep. Just, just in, in case in you case. don't. Like you get exceptions like the, the bromeliad frog, which like carries an individual tadpole. Yeah. And there and, are frogs that will carry like their young yes. on their back. There's all sorts of stuff. But like this is a, that is not a common widespread thing. This is a fairly Sicilian feature. Yeah. And that's, that's very interesting. And they're doing it in a very unique way. Yep. So just all across the board, Sicilians are filled with unique anatomical features, behavioral features, physiological features. They are a very distinctive, unique, and utterly weird group of vertebrate animals. Yes. Man, somewhere there's a timeline where they were the group of amphibians that gave rise to to, to land conquering. Somewhere there's a timeline where they're the snakes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I don't... (laughs) I don't like it. That is not <laughs> just just <laughs> terrestrial subway <laughs> trains that just end in a butt. <laughs> Shut! I don't. I don't like the butt. Still, after everything else we have talked about with Sicilians, that is still the thing that I dislike. I, I that weirds me out the most. I just, just butt. I love picturing giant above ground Sicilians just being just sausaged in yep. just a just a cloaca just. Just a very strange. They're such a weird group of animals. It's even uh, funnier if you go in butt cheeks. We that, which is exactly how <laughs> I've been picturing it. I don't know about the rest of you. Guaranteed, Sicilians are going to start showing up in spooky more often. <laughs> given all this, we'll have to put a disclaimer. I'll put like a, a warning in this episode. Body horror contains Sicilians. Yes, this episode contains a hundred percent more Sicilians than most episodes of the Common Sense Podcast. Fascinating. Yes. Utterly fascinating, extremely weird animals, which, of course, because this is a podcast about paleontology and evolution and life history, raises all sorts of fascinating questions about how did this happen and where, what is the history of this group of animals? Uh, The answer, by the way, is very limited. (laughs) If you think think modern Sicilians are not understood very well, just you wait. After the break, we will talk about the evolutionary history and fossil record of this absolute ridiculous group of animals. Stay tuned. All right, so moving into a discussion about the evolutionary history and origins of Sicilians. Once again, as I mentioned, all modern amphibians belong to the group Lysamphibia. Frogs and salamanders both belong to the group Batrachia, and Sicilians are a separate group called Gymnophiona. This means they branched off before frogs and salamanders split from each other, 
which makes them of interest for researchers as potentially informative for the early evolution of Lysamphibia. There have been some DNA studies estimating the origins and the, the, the timing of certain events. So, for example, DNA estimates indicate that Lysamphibia, the whole group, originated sometime likely in the Carboniferous or Permian, so around 350 to 250 million years ago, late Paleozoic. DNA estimates suggest that Gymnophiona, the group of all modern Sicilians, likely originated in the late Cretaceous, Okay, perhaps around 80 million years ago, but that Gymnophionomorpha, the larger lineage that includes Gymnophiona, the Sicilians themselves, branched off way early on, as far back as the Permian or so, you know, maybe 250, 300 million years ago. So we've got our crown group, that is the group that includes all the modern species, that is Gymnophiona, which has probably been around since the late Cretaceous, and Gymnophionomorpha is all the other stuff. The ancient relatives and cousins and ancestors who are not properly Gymnophiona, but are closer to Gymnophiona than anything else. Gymnophiona, our crown group. All the other Gymnophionomorpha, the stem group. I've taken the time to specify this because it's going to be important here in a little bit. (laughs) But if we go all the way back to the start... The evolutionary history of Gymnophiona and the greater Gymnophionomorpha is a major sort of central piece of the big discussion of where amphibians came from. Mm -hmm. The origins of Lysamphibia, our frog salamander Sicilian group, is rather mysterious in the sense that for a long time, paleontologists and biologists have had a hard time agreeing which ancient group of early amphibians gave rise to Lysamphibia? This came up in the Frogs episode. This is an ongoing discussion. There are generally cited three major hypotheses about where Lysamphibia came from. One is that Lysamphibians originated from Temnospondyls. Okay. This is a group of Paleozoic uh, early amphibians that were very salamander and croc-shaped. Specifically, Lysamphibians have been linked to a group of temnospondyls called Dysorophoid temnospondyls. The second hypothesis is that Lysamphibians might originate within Lepospondyls. These are often salamander or eel-like, different group of Paleozoic early tetrapods. And then the third hypothesis, which has cropped up a few times including recently, is that Batrachian amphibians, frogs and salamanders, and Gymnophionans, Sicilians, are separate. Yeah. And that the first group came from Temnospondyls, and the Sicilian lineage came from Lepospondyls, and that they actually are not the same group. They originated separately. This hypothesis is not supported by the most recent DNA studies, which show the group as one group with the shared origin, but it has been one of the major hypotheses over time. Which seems like an obvious question you have to ask just looking at them should these really be grouped together with how utterly different they are and it becomes very difficult because they're so different and weird that it can be difficult to compare them adequately uh, in terms of the features that we want to use to try to determine that because what we're looking at today is the end result of hundreds of millions of years of evolution where they may have been much more similar when they split 
now. Oftentimes, when we come into a situation like this, we like to then turn for support from the fossil record. The Sicilian fossil record is not good. (laughs) In fact, it is very bad. Yes. (laughs) However, there are known fossils, and we've actually mentioned a few uh, in previous episodes because they've come up in the news a few times. There are fossils of both true Gymnophiona, so the modern group of Sicilians, the, the crown group, and other Gymnophionomorpha stem Sicilians, the slightly more distant cousins sort of further back down the Sicilian family tree. The ones we have mentioned in our previous episodes have been stem Sicilians. Yeah. Gymnophionomorpha, not Gymnophiona, like the group we have today. So we've got both crown group Sicilians and stem Sicilians. And in this episode discussion, I am going to do a thing that we very rarely do. In fact, I, I maybe we've done this once before. I don't know. I am going to discuss and describe the entire Sicilian fossil record <laughs> in this episode. How am I able to do this? Uh, there are two reasons. Number one, there is not a lot of fossil material. There's like maybe 12 yeah. cases of Sicilian fossils. And also because one of my references is a paper, Santos et al. 2020, a review of the fossil record of Sicilians, which is very convenient. Yes. Now, like I said, we've got fossils from Gymnophiona, the crown group, the modern group of Sicilians, and we've got fossils of stem Sicilians. Let us begin with Gymnophiona fossils, the modern lineage of Sicilians. There are two notable examples that I want to mention. The first is the first. The first fossil Sicilian ever identified as a species of fossil Sicilian was described in 1972, which is not a very long time ago. No, not particularly. This species is Apodops pricei from the early Eocene of Brazil around 50 million years ago. This specimen is, and this is, I think this is how the 2020 paper described it, which I love because it is uh, delightfully generous. This fossil Sicilian is known from one almost complete vertebra. <laughs> this, bro- this bone is about two millimeters long, and it's almost all there. <laughs> almost all of it. We almost have a bone. Almost the whole vertebra. Uh, we've talked about this with snakes before. Like snakes, most of the body of a Sicilian, most of the skeleton is vertebrae. So you're going to end up with a lot of isolated fossil vertebrae. Yes. That's the case with snakes as well. And uh, also like snakes, Sicilian vertebrae look very distinct. Uh, They look like Sicilians. They are easy to identify as Sicilian. Apodops pricei is identified from this one isolated vertebra. However, it's a little complicated because, number one, more recent studies have found that there are certain features that it shares with modern Sicilians that might adjust its identification a little bit. Okay. And also because according to that 2020 paper, that vertebra is currently lost. Oh, no. Now, the paper did not specify why it's lost. Oh, no. Whether it has been misplaced or perhaps lost in some sort of horrible accident. I don't know. But this species is in need of reevaluation. Yep. So that's 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 how we're starting this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, surely it can only get better from here. The second notable (laughs) specimen that I wanted to mention is kind of the opposite in in most regards. This is a specimen that was described in 2011, much more recently, from Uganda. This one is known from one almost complete skull. 
Ooh. Which is actually extremely cool. Yeah. Uh, the skull is about 21 millimeters long. Very tiny because Sicilians. It comes from the early Miocene around 20 million years ago. It is not identified to any particular species or anything. Just Sicilian. Yeah. But it's notable because it is the most complete fossil that we have of a Gymnophionan Sicilian. All right. So we've got these two examples, one from the early Cenozoic of South America, one from the later Cenozoic of Africa. Well, we had one of them. We had, that's true. We had (laughs) one of them. And the reason that I brought up these two is because they are both noteworthy and unique for their own uh, particular reasons. Apodops, that first one, is not only the first one to be described, it is the only Gymnophiona fossil to be identified to a species or genus. Okay. All the other ones are Sicilian. (laughs) The Uganda specimen, the nearly complete skull, is the only Gymnophiona fossil that is more than just vertebrae. (laughs) That's kind of what I was expecting with that one. Now I am going to list all the other fossils of Sicilians as mentioned in that paper, from youngest to oldest. A 1999 study identified a single vertebra from Mexico, around 3,000 years old, as Sicilian. A 1997 study identified three isolated vertebrae from Colombia, mid-Miocene, around 12 million years ago. And these were noted to be large. So maybe one of the larger groups of Sicilians. That's pretty cool. A pair of studies... In the early 90s and early 2000s, identified eight vertebrae (laughs) from two different fossil localities in Bolivia, one Paleocene around 62 million years ago, and one late Cretaceous around 68 million years ago. And then a couple of studies in the 1990s identified four vertebrae from Sudan, late Cretaceous, 79 million years ago. All right. And that is the Gymnophiona fossil record. Now, that paper does note that there might be more. (laughs) They note three other mentions in the scientific literature of isolated vertebrae from the Eocene of Algeria, the Miocene of Colombia, and the Miocene of Kenya. Three cases that are maybe Sicilians, but have not been described yet or adequately uh, analyzed or published. Yes, so there might be some suspected ones waiting in the wings. So... With those on our list, there might be as many as 10 (laughs) known cases of Sicilians of the modern group Gymnophiona in the fossil record across the last 80 million years. Double digits. So we know basically nothing about the fossil history of Gymnophiona. That's nothing. This group is... We've talked about groups in the past with a bad fossil record. Oh, yeah. We were overly dramatic about bats. Right. (laughs) Bats, episode 59. But last... uh, A couple episodes ago, the Messel Pit, they've got whole bat skeletons in the Messel Pit. There are examples of really good fossils of bats. We did a whole episode about ants, and ants have a surprisingly good fossil record. Mm-hmm. Even if you ignore amber, there's a bunch of like cool ant fossils out there. Spiders, there's mm-hmm. like actual spiders. Sicilians are extremely depauperate in their fossil record. 
that I just listed the whole thing. Yes, that's that's every bit we know. Now, again, that is Gymnofiona. If we go back further into the greater Gymnofiona Morpha, we find a few more examples that are much more exciting. <laughs> so these are stem Sicilians, not in the modern group, but on the lineage uh, that includes the modern group. So these are ancient cousins slash maybe ancestors yeah, or of true Sicilians. Real close to the ancestors and stuff right. like that. Let us continue to walk back in time. In 2001, a study described the species Rubrico Sicilia monbarani. Cool name. From the early Cretaceous of Morocco, around 140 million years old, Rubrico Sicilia is known from a fragmentary skull, several vertebrae, and possibly a femur. That's practically the whole... That's more Sicilian than we could get. <laughs> that's true. It's, it's more Sicilian than our Sicilians will ever be. Yeah. They don't even have femurs to leave behind. <laughs> the skull of Rubrico Sicilia shows some of the characteristic fused bones like we see in Sicilians today, but also has some unfused bones that in modern Sicilians are fused. Hmm. So it's got some of the skull features of modern Sicilians but not all of them, and also possibly a femur. Yes. Which is a thigh bone, which, as you said, we do not find in Sicilians. So this is very Sicilian-like, but clearly a couple notches back in the evolutionary uh, progression of their lineage. Which is, which is, from an evolutionary standpoint, very satisfyingly familiar. And it's like, th this is what your ancestors... We would expect them to yes. look like. Thank you for cooperating. Just this is very in pattern with other groups of life. You didn't have wings or something, right? That you, you lost not, to become worms. You were not uh, excavated in a UFO crash site. <laughs> yeah, like, no, it's a pretty standard. Okay. Okay. And indeed, even better than that, if we go back a little bit further, uh, the first ancient Sicilian identified all the way back in 1993. And the most famous one by far, we've mentioned this one on the podcast, Eosicilia macropodia from the early Jurassic of Arizona, around 183 million years old. My, uh, I, I note that here in my notes I have written, now we're talking. <laughs> Eosicilia is known from 40 specimens. There we go. Including two nearly complete skulls and other various parts of skulls, vertebrae, shoulder bones ah. and limb bones. This is a actually well-known fossil specimen. Yes. The first one. Yes. <laughs> this is the first one on the list. <laughs> Eosicilia is fantastic. We it can is... actually do something with this. <laughs> we can work with this. <laughs> Everything that we would hope for. It has this wonderful mixture of features. Uh, again, this is early Jurassic. It has lots of the fused elements of, of the skull but also some that are not, and some bones that modern Sicilians have lost Okay, that Eosicilia still has. So not, the skull is on the way. It's not just fusion and, and unfusion, but reduction of bones that we have seen yes. hasn't happened yet. Exactly. Eosicilia also has a tentacular sulcus. Ooh! The feature on the skull that shows where the tentacles were. And a long body. Uh, the authors estimate, based on the remains that Eosicilia would have had at least 64 vertebrae. Oh, okay. So a long, worm-like body. But at the same time, in addition to the skull features not quite being like modern Sicilians, uh, it also has legs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They are small and reduced, but present, 
both front and back. All right. So shoulder elements, front legs, back legs. This would have looked probably a lot like modern uh, long lizards mm-hmm. that have very short legs, short legs like the limbless geckos and things like that. Well, like those skinks that have that, that you have legs, but only technically. Right. You're not really <laughs> using them. It's also a lot like the early snakes. Yes. That have the ones we have are only have the back legs. Which this is still so weird. You have both. Yeah. Well, snakes. <laughs> snakes are also weird. Well, and speaking of weird, here's the real question. Does it have a tail? Now, I was thinking this. <laughs> I was thinking about this because I will always be thinking about yep, this. Yep, yep. Basil Sicilians today mm-hmm. have very short tails. Yeah, they look like a little nubbin. A little a little point at the end so that there is body beyond the cloaca, <laughs> which I would assume is a good indication that the earliest members of Gymnophiona had tails. Yes, so their ancestral cousins, one would assume, had tails, although I cannot discount the possibility <laughs> that they were independently just losing tails left and right. Although, now that I'm saying this, I think maybe I read something about tail vertebrae. Okay, okay. In Eosicilia. Hang on, we're going to pause the, the recording <laughs> and I'm going to look it up. Okay, I have looked it up. I found a paper describing the anatomy of Eo Sicilia, and it... I would do a drum roll on the table, but that would be terrible for the it audio. Would be, it would sound really bad. Distinctly mentions caudal vertebrae. Okay, okay. Eo Sicilia <laughs> had a tail. Breathe easy, uh, everyone. Therefore, maybe my favorite Sicilian. <laughs> if, Thank you. If for, not... <laughs> just for being just vaguely normal. Yes, if just, not... Why can't... Gestures at snakes. Why can't you be more like your sister? <laughs> what was in my head if they didn't have one? And this is this is a very once again, evidently my brain can only reach into very niche references for Sicilians. Sure. If anyone out there remembers the flexi Hot Wheels that were around for a while, that just had two fronts of a car stretched out with a flexi middle. That's what I was pictured was just little legs up front, little legs up back, and then just a little trunk. Well, but sticking off in the back me, of the back legs. It makes me think of like Wiggler <laughs> from the Mario franchise yep. where it's just legs all the way down, except none of the middle legs. There's yes. legs right behind the head and there's legs right at the end yep. with your little butt. Eosicilia. Huh. So in between, right? Some fusion of the skull, but not all of it. Long body, but still legs. Tail. <laughs> Eosicilia very nicely... Uh, it, 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 this is a classic version. It, 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 this is a classic example of a transition fossil. Yes. When we talk about a fossil that shows us a partway point between the ancestral version and what we have today, Eosicilia also helps to give us information potentially about the order of things. Yes. They, they had a long body, but still legs, but they already had the tentacles and the skull wasn't fully fused. So we're getting this sort of order of events. That was the first thing I thought of when you mentioned the tentacle. I was like, all right, so that came around before their super, super fused faces. Right. But the, the skull had already begun to fuse. Yes. So, but the legs were still not mm-hmm. one. So, which makes total sense for a burrowing animal on a lineage that is adapting further and further to that burrowing lifestyle. Well, yeah, all the features that a Sicilian has make sense for where they live and how they live. But as we've often mentioned, it is not intuitive or clear what order those things were acquired, because even though they all make sense for subterranean life now, that doesn't mean that's 
how they all evolved or why they right. all evolved. Now, as we continue back in time, we come across an odd one. This is an odd one because it is likely, it seems, not a stem Sicilian. Ooh. But if you go looking around, this is going to come up because it was a big newsmaker. In 2017, a study identified a possible stem Sicilian from the Triassic of Colorado. So, Rubrico Sicilia in the Cretaceous, Eo Sicilia in the Jurassic, uh, and now we've got this one in the Triassic. Chinle Stegophus, known from partially preserved skulls, jaws, and some body elements. So, that should have been the first clue. <laughs> that maybe we're not dealing with a Sicilian. We have an actually good representation of the fossils. Originally identified as close to Sicilians, although recent reanalysis has questioned that yeah. this might not be the case. And this has been important. And the reason that this one made headlines, and we may have talked about it on the podcast way back in the day. Oh, yeah. That the authors noted that there are features similar to Sicilians, but also similar to stereospondyls, which is a group of Paleozoic uh, uh, part of the temnospondyls. Yes. And they suggested that this fossil might support that hypothesis that Sicilians originated separately from frogs and salamanders, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. they originated from two different groups of Paleozoic amphibians. More recent studies have found that that mixture of features might... More recent studies have found that the features they interpreted might not actually fully hold up. Okay. There may have been some confusion due to uh, some features that are just hard to read and also possibly convergent evolution. Yes. Making this fossil look more like a Sicilian than it actually is. Uh, more recent studies have concluded that this is probably just a stereospondyl not necessarily actually part of the Sicilian lineage. Yeah, it's not a Sicilian with stereospondyl ancestral traits, right. but a stereospondyl that is become shaped like a Sicilian for whatever reason. Right. So this one has kind of more recently been pushed off as, well, that, that probably actually doesn't belong in this group. But in 2017, it made headlines because of how big a deal it would be to find a Triassic stem Sicilia, Triassic gym, 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 gymnophionomorphin group, <laughs> a Triassic gymnophionomorphin, because of what that would tell us about this group. Yes, which is exactly why it made such headlines again earlier this year <laughs> when researchers reported a Triassic stem Sicilian. <laughs> but for real this time, but for real this time, we talked about this a few episodes ago. Earlier this year, researchers reported. The discovery of a new species, Funcus vermis gilmori. Yeah. From the late Triassic of Arizona. Now we're around 220 million years ago. From the Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona. Funcus vermis is known from, reportedly, at least 76 individuals represented by a variety of isolated parts of the skeleton, upper and lower jaws, vertebrae, limb elements. This is... The best assemblage of anything vaguely Sicilian. See, <laughs> this is this is what we need. This is like when you're watching a, a, a celebrity's like you know career as they like go through a character or go through you know a bit or like you know whatever their thing is, and you can see their early stuff. And it's like all right, all right, you're you're partially there, but you haven't figured out your act yet. They hadn't figured out that they're supposed to be vague and mysterious. Right, I, I actually was just <laughs> making. I hadn't really realized this, but. It does seem to be that the farther back <laughs> yep. we go, 
the better the fossils get. Yeah, that wasn't See, their shtick yet. That's a diagnostic feature of Sicilians. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's going to dig up a like just a full skeleton articulated and go, I found a Sicilian. And someone will go, no, 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 no. That can't be a Sicilian. That is <laughs> of a course you didn't. Full articulated skeleton. Yeah, that is nonsense. Funkus vermis, whose name means funky worm, identified as a very early member of the gymnophionomorphs, branching off earlier than Eosicilia, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. an even earlier branch, uh, as well as being an older fossil. Once again, we're seeing features that are, as we go back in time, progressively less Sicilian. It has some of the compound bones in the skull. Uh, the shape of the vertebrae were interpreted to suggest a tubular body. Ooh. So already perhaps a longer uh, worm-shaped body. But there is no tentacular sulcus, so it does not appear to have had the tentacle. The jaw does not appear to be shaped the way that we see in modern Sicilians, such that it looks like this didn't have that dual jaw closure mechanism. Yeah, the, so the it was, throat muscles weren't engaged. Yep, it was probably closing its jaw like a normal vertebrate, <laughs> just with its mandibular muscles. Uh, There are potential signs in the shape of the skull that the eyes might have been a little bit larger than we expect for Sicilians. And legs. Yep, yep, yep. So this is even a little bit less Sicilian than we saw in Eosicilia. Along with those other fossils, this does start to paint a picture of that order of events. That the skull and worm-like body may have started evolving early on, and then later on... By the time of Eosicilia, this lineage had more fused bones, the tentacle, the specialized jaws. And then by the time we get to Gymnophiona, the true modern Sicilians, the limbs were also lost. So we're seeing this gradual development over time of Sicilian. Which makes it notable uh, because one thought that pops into my mind, at least when thinking about how odd Sicilians are, as we've discussed with other modern groups that are weird compared to their fossil assemblages. Like, you know, right. sloths are an outlier among the greater sloth diversity. Right. The, the sloths we happen to still have today are the weird sloths. They, those are unusual. We don't have a ton of shape well, like, like that. Like we talked about with giraffes. Exactly. Uh, the, the ones we have today are kind of the extreme giraffes. Yeah. Most of their fossil record are much more reasonable animals. And so with Sicilians, it, it would not be wholly uh, surprising if we found out it's like, really... Really, it's this group. Right. This was just a group of salamander things. Yes. And then this branch. For whatever reason, that's the one that survived. But it looks like they were fairly Sicilian as a overall group. Yeah. And so our our modern day weirdos aren't weird compared to their relatives. No. This this is pretty standard Sicilian stuff. Which is notable because Sicilians are one of the lesser known of the worm-shaped vertebrates. So yes. this has happened a whole bunch of times. And if Sicilians were already doing that in the Triassic, that means they were doing it very likely well before snakes and lizards were doing it. Yep. Sicilians were vermiform, you know, worm-shaped, way, way, way back. Which does raise uh, some other very important questions. Like, for example, for how many hundreds of millions of years have Sicilians been eating the skins yes. off of their parents? That that's an important question. Mm-hmm. We know that the sudden butt <laughs> is a relatively recent evolutionary distinction. How many of the weird Sicilian things mm-hmm. have been weird? And 
who knows what weird stuff these ancient Sicilians were doing. Yes. Was Eos Sicilia, did it have a thing that was like, even by Sicilian? Who knows? Now, like I said, not only does the discovery of a Triassic Sicilian tell us more about Sicilian evolution, but big news headlines because of what it suggests for the origins of the amphibian lineage. We talked about this when we mentioned this in the news. Funcus vermis, as the authors noted, shares skeletal features not only with Sicilians, but also with Batrachians, the group that includes frogs and salamanders, which supports the idea that they are one mm-hmm. united group, and with disorophoid temnospondyls. Hypothesis number one. This supports a monophyletic group that they the, all the list amphibians are closely related and seems to support that their ancestors may have been those temnospondyls. Yes. So this one fossil, like the, the last one, is this fossil strongly supports one of those hypotheses and is therefore a big deal. Yep. For early amphibian origins. Now, all of that being said, we have this handful of actually really pretty good stem Sicilian fossils, but they are a handful. Yes. That's with such a scarce fossil record, it makes it very difficult to make definitive statements about the timing of certain events in their history or the relationships of the Sicilians that we have. We could very well discover another stem Sicilian that might support a slightly different hypothesis. There's just not a whole lot to go on. So while we have answered a number of interesting questions, there are still plenty of open questions about the evolutionary history of this group. I did just list all Mm 12-ish of the known gymnophionomorphin lineage fossils yeah so like even though the quality and the the fossils preserved in number and diversity improved immensely so it's so much better <laughs> when we left the modern group like the mesozoic is so good <laughs> it still is not a robust fossil record no like that that is still a very sparse yeah we just very we just discussed out. the mm-hmm. whole thing yep in about 30 minutes and and we don't have this you know we have them you know throughout the mesozoic but still like Kind of hopscotching. One in each period. Yes, exactly. Uh, and then uh, there were a couple toward the end of the Cretaceous. Yeah. But, but uh, the stem group, we've got one from each Mesozoic period. We do not have a nice record through the timeline. So it, there's big gaps and we don't know what's happening between you not having tentacles and you having tentacles. Right. That Okay. So those showed up at some point and... There's a lot of those things that we still are just utterly missing any data on. Which is to say that the debate about where amphibians came from is not over. No. Uh, this that, that that fungus vermis fossil really helps. Yes. Uh, which is very exciting. This fossil supporting that hypothesis also does line up better with the DNA data. Yes, it does. So it, it does feel, from my very limited <laughs> perspective on this issue... It does seem like maybe we are we are zeroing yes. in on a correct answer. So for the time being, disorophoid temnospondyls seem to be the top candidate for where Sicilians and the other Lysamphibians initially came from. Now, there is one last thing that I do want to mention about the fossil record of Sicilians now that we've gone over the whole thing. Uh, there is an interesting pattern to it that was mentioned in the Funcus Vermis paper that is... All fossils of Sicilians are known from the tropics. Yes. 
all the fossil gymnophiona, so the crown group fossils, are all known from basically the same places that we find them today. And then the stem species, the earlier ones, are known in Morocco and southern North America, where there are not Sicilians today, and they are not the tropics, but they were yes. at that time. When things were much warmer. And it may even be the case that the reason they're not there anymore is because the continents drifted and pulled those areas out of the tropics. So our, once again, very limited fossil record, so far seems to suggest that, at least as far as our information goes, this lineage of amphibians has always been restricted to the tropics. Yes. Which is a very interesting thing to note about this group. Also, potentially helps us to uh, predict where to find them and where to look. And of course, it also means that someday there will be some groundbreaking, headline-making study that finds... uh, a Sicilian fossil in Siberia. Yeah, the or tundra something. Sicilian. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the, it, the polar Sicilian. It also makes a lot of sense, and we've talked about this before, that tropical environments typically do not fossilize yes. life well because the things that die there are usually biodegraded very quickly. They're, the resources are recycled very aggressively in the tropics. Also, the tropics today tend to be home to very lush environments mm-hmm. that are not good for preserved for, for maintaining fossils. Yes, exactly. Like a rainforest is just going to churn up all of the sediment and the soil and the bedrock. So even we, if you were nicely buried. Right, we don't go fossil hunting in the rainforest. So any place that is still in the tropics is likely to be inaccessible for us to go fossil hunting anyway. And so we've mentioned that time and time again that the tropical fossils are always exciting because they're rare. It is not common... And I can't think of even another group to compare them to that we have an entire group where that is the issue. Right. So all modern and apparently (laughs) fossil species are tropical. So they're all plagued by this tropical fossilization issue. They they don't have the courtesy to be tropical like corals Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and be in the shallow ocean, which is a great environment (laughs) for deposition. They're in like rainforests and stuff, which are horrible for this. So it's a very unique scenario that is likely a big reason why our fossil record is so poor. Yep. So, uh, Sicilians. Sicilians are so weird. They're so weird today. They're so rare and hard to understand. Just hard to study. Mm -hmm. And they're even weirder and harder to understand and rarer in the fossil record. Yep. They are utterly fascinating. What an interesting, weird group of animals. They are surprising at every turn. And it means that any time a Sicilian thing happens, it's exciting. Yes. Because it's probably news. Yep. Yep. Every Sicilian fossil discovery for some time into the future will be a big deal. Mm-hmm. Because there's just so little. They, they can only tell us something interesting. Or at the very least, add to that number. Oh, yeah. Like, that even if very it's, short number. <laughs> even if it's something we already found, it's doubled the amount of information about that feature. Yes. <laughs> I look forward to the day, and I put this out there for all of you amphibian researchers. I look forward to the day where we cannot discuss the entire Sicilian fossil <laughs> record in one episode of the podcast. It'll take two. Someday. Someday. <laughs> we will reach that point. Listeners. Uh, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode. This has been an utter delight. I really, the, the Sicilians are so cool. 
check out the blog post because there will be links to a lot of these references and there will also be pictures. I will have to see if I can find a good free-to-use image that depicts a Sicilian's butt. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if not, maybe I will find one and link to it. (laughs) Just, I don't, mm, mm, I'm unhappy about it. That'll just be the, maybe that should be the teaser image. (laughs) There you go. Teaser image. There you go. Sicilian's butt. (laughs) Anyway, just, just leave, leave us, leave a bit of silence here in the audio as I stare into the a thousand vertebra stare this is this is off into the distance we need those those uh background images coming in of just different angles of sicilian Sicilian butts sicilian butts (laughs) anyway there's one last thing to do in this episode and that is a patron question every episode we like to end things these days by reading a question submitted by our patrons that's one of the goodies that patrons can get by supporting us on patreon at a certain level they can submit questions for us to answer right here on the podcast Will, what's our question? Our question is from Tracy, who says, You have mentioned that evidence of pack behavior in the fossil record is rare, but not unheard of. What are some examples that point to pack-forming behavior? And what evidence would paleontologists consider strong evidence for pack behavior? This is a great question. Uh, And we've mentioned this here and there on the podcast, indeed, So the question of pack behavior in the fossil record is actually kind of two different questions. Mm -hmm. Group behavior, herding and and living in groups, is actually relatively common to find good evidence for in the fossil record. Yes. Uh, We actually have a bunch of these. So there's uh, dinosaurs. This comes up with quite a bit where we will have fossil sites where you've got multiple specimens, multiple skeletons all buried in the same layer of sediment, with the same preservation, seemingly buried in the same way. Uh, We have that with dinosaurs, pterosaurs, mammoths, a variety of things. We'll also get footprint evidence, trackways that show footprints of multiple individuals in the same layer, seemingly at the same time, and even coordinated with each other. Yeah, responding to the movements of other footprints. So they don't bump into each other. We've got evidence of parental care, with nests and dens where we'll have multiple ages of the same species. Uh, This kind of evidence is known for all sorts of different dinosaurs, for example. We've got this for mammals and such. So all of that is evidence of group behavior. Mm -hmm. So living in a group, living in the same den, moving in a herd, stuff like that. But when people ask about pack behavior, what they are often thinking of is pack hunting behavior. Yes. Uh, Which is something we see in some modern animals. Yep. But most famously wolves. Wolves mm. are like the, er, the, the the iconic example of this. Wolf pack. <laughs> Wolf pack. Uh, but African wild dogs do this. Uh, dolphins will, will hunt as groups. There's all sorts yeah, of animals. Hyenas, lions, so on and so forth. This is extremely difficult to show conclusively with evidence in the fossil record. In fact, I don't know of any example where there has been evidence put forth that says, here is conclusive evidence that this ancient species was hunting in packs. Yep. One line of evidence is just phylogeny. Mm-hmm. So if we find ancient wolves, it is likely simply because of their relationship. But in terms of specific fossil evidence, this has come up specifically with dinosaurs a bunch. So this has come up a lot with Deinonychus, mm-hmm. which is the famous example of the maybe pack hunting dinosaur. Early on, the suggestion came up because researchers would find teeth and skeletons of Deinonychus buried alongside Tenontosaurus, 
which was considered a good prey item for Deinonychus, but too big for one to take down, and the fact that they're buried with teeth and remains of other Deinonychus might mean that they were hunting in packs. But other researchers have pointed out that there are plenty of animals that feed in groups, Mm -hmm. even if they're not actually hunting in groups. Crocs do this, Komodo dragons do this, vultures do this, Yes, uh, sharks do this. There was a 2020 study that was really interesting that looked at isotopes in the teeth uh, teeth and or bones of Deinonychus and found that the isotope signature of their diet, so what they were eating affected the chemical isotopes in the teeth, the signature was different for adults versus juveniles, which that paper pointed out if they were pack hunting, we would expect the adults and juveniles to be eating the same things. Yes. Because a pack is usually a family group. The fact that they were different signals indicates that they were eating different foods. Now, that, uh, I will put forth, is further complicated by the fact that even things like wolves don't always pack hunt. Mm-hmm. Like an individual wolf will go after rabbits and stuff yes. to, by itself. So even a pack isn't always going to be eating the same foods. They might be differentiated depending on the time of the year or whatever. When you have a lot of group hunting behavior, that is a seasonal thing. Yes. We hunt individually, but then when the, you know, whatever big prey animal comes through on their migration, now we band together. Right. Because now, because we need to work together to take down this bison, mammoth, what, you know, whatever it was. So it is extremely likely that there were animals throughout the history of the earth that hunted in packs. Yeah. Because it's, it's not extremely common today, but there are many examples of it yes, in of the world today. Differently uh, uh, evolved examples, different unrelated groups. Yes. And the last part of Tracy's question is what evidence would paleontologists consider strong evidence for pack behavior? That is a very hard question to answer. And I, I get the one, I guess the thing, the first thing that comes to mind is because we have examples of footprints showing dinosaurs and stuff moving together. And I think there is at least one example somewhere of a prey animal footprint seemingly being followed by a couple of predatory dinosaurs. Yes. I guess in theory, we could find really nice trackways that show different predatory animals doing different things. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of modern day pack hunters, well, multiple members will each have a different role. Yes. Like one is rushing the animal, the prey animal in a particular direction. And then the other one is jumping out to ambush them. So I guess if we got like a really nice set of trackways, we could potentially see evidence of footprints showing different roles during a hunt. Yeah. Which would be very strong evidence for pack hunting. Uh, but other than that, I don't, could we maybe get a fossilized bait ball? Right, right. Of fish? <laughs> like, could we get a, like a few dolphin skeletons or mosasaurs or whatever <laughs> surrounding the fossilized remains of just a ball of fish? That they had herded together that all got covered up by like a, a, a underground turbidity current or yeah. something. But underwater. Even, even that's one of those where the bait balling behavior is something the fish do. That's right. not a result of the dolphin's coordination. Fish will do that if there's one shark. Right. Because that's what we had at the aquarium was a <laughs> single black tip shark and a bunch of sardines that would bait ball because there was one predator. So that still could just be predators showed up. Right. It's the same issue with finding multiple predators around one body is that could just be scavenging. Right. Or so. it just could be gregarious feeding. Mm-hmm. And then we have tons of animals that seem to have lived together, mm-hmm. but plenty of animals today live together, but don't hunt together. So 
I don't I yeah. I don't know what else would be like a good conclusive evidence of pack hunting. Well, and this might seem, you know, weird that that we struggle so much to come up with what the ideal evidence would be, but it is hard to define for sure pack behavior in modern animals. Yes. I read a whole paper that was here are the handful of examples of potentially cooperative feeding and hunting in crocodilians. Yep. And each one was, here's what was described to have happened based on eyewitness accounts, because it's all, you know, typically happening out in in nature. And so it was someone just observed it and recounted it. And then they'd be like, all right, here's what it was. But it could have also just been that one of them failed. And then when that prey ran away from the failed attack, there happened to be two more crocodiles. It wasn't an intentional ambush. Yeah. It's just that there were a bunch of crocs around. Yes, there's just a lot of crocs here, and that one didn't get the food, and those two did, and then the third one caught up. <laughs> so it it it's a very di- like most behavioral stuff. It's very difficult to show that a particular group of animals in the fossil record was performing a particular kind of behavior. Now it's very likely there's something that I'm not thinking of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of evidence, but at least for now, I can't think of a lot of good ways to do it yeah uh dear listeners if you can think of a of a way that you think would be a a conclusive bit of fossil evidence for pack hunting let us know what your thoughts are but maybe what if we could you wouldn't be able to quite get the specific with like isotope studies but if you had gut contents and it was true like gut contents in young of the group or something you know like it that is a prey item that is definitely too big for these Right. To be taken down. What we really need is a whole area that where a series of animals left footprints hunting and ambushing a prey animal. And then all of them, st- they started eating. And then the whole thing was buried in like a sand dune collapse. So we've got all of the skeletons and we can test all of their isotopes mm-hmm. to show they were eating the same thing. And also they have gut contents in them. Yeah. That'd be great. Yes. It And yeah. Uh, it is pack behavior seems like such a straightforward concept, but a lot of the examples we point to wolves and lions and so forth are extremely good examples. Like those are the pinnacle of pack hunting and dolphins included in that. Like that's the tippy top, but there's a bunch of stuff like certain hawks will team up, but it's not nearly as complicated. It's not a wolf pack of hawks. It's like a couple of hawks, but that's still technically group hunting. So it is a complicated topic Mm -hmm. and it's behavioral. So there you go, Tracy. Uh, The answer is, I don't know. But like I said, we invite all of you to think about it. What, What would be what would conclusive evidence of pack hunting behavior in the fossil record look like? Let us know what your thoughts are. It's also a great opportunity for speculative stuff in documentaries. And like I I'm always pro speculating how would this group have group hunted if they did because surely it was happening with someone yeah thank you tracy for that thought-provoking question a very good question thank you to everybody uh who subscribes to us on patreon thank you to everybody who listens to us and thank you to everyone who submitted requests for this episode this was a lot of fun we hope you have had a lot of fun as i said be sure to check out the blog post for links and pictures and stuff Check the episode description for the link to the blog and also links to all of our social media and our Discord and that Audible link where you can get books but also help support the podcast. All sorts of different things. 
And also, thank you again to Sabrina and Garrett from I Know Dino for joining us this episode for the news. Tons of fun talking to them. We hope that you enjoyed it as well. And hey, go down to the episode description for the links to their podcast stuff. Check it out. And if you're looking for more dinosaur content, listen to them. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So they they were delightful. So give them a listen. Perhaps they won't be our last news guests. Yeah, that would be neat. We'll have to see what the future holds. We release episodes every fortnight. So stay tuned for more episodes coming up. And now uh, we're going to ramble a little bit. Because this is a long episode, (laughs) and long things should have a tail. Yes. Long things should have a bit at the end, beyond Uh, the end. Beyond where it should have ended. Beyond where it should have ended, (laughs) there should be a little bit more, where there's no organs or anything in there anymore. It's just there to to kind of finish off. Just kind of trails off towards the end. The telomere of the animal. It is, it is the, the, the part, it belongs there. <laughs> That's what's supposed to be there. Dear listeners, thank you for listening. Sweet dreams of Sicilians doing all their weird Sicilian things. That's it. I got nothing else. Nope. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.